Reading this morning from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 5, 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for the word that you have given us, your very words to us. God, we, we ask for ears to hear that we would respond to you in faith and obedience out of love for you. Thank you, God, for all that you are to us and all that you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finished with Nehemiah, and I've been thinking and praying about what to start next, and it's been um, over 20 years since I have preached through Matthew. And so I thought um, I would do that, not because it's familiar territory um, for me, but um, more so because it is so much about the king and his kingdom. And if we are living in a time that um, I know is not unprecedented, but it seems to be where um, our world is being shaken and it's, it's difficult to find our footing of just how God would want us to live in this world at this time, I thought this would be a good book to go to where Christ is introducing himself as king and his coming kingdom. As you may recall, the four Gospels each present Jesus in a slightly different way. Matthew is the Gospel of Jesus as king. It is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Um, There are more Old Testament references in Matthew than in any of the other Gospels. Um, so if you were going to share Christ with a, with a Jew, um, this would be the place that you would want to start with the book of Matthew. In Luke, Jesus is, I'm sorry, I've skipped Mark. Mark, Jesus is presented as the servant. In Luke, he is man. And in John, he is God. And so of those four gospels, only two have the genealogy of Christ. And that would be Matthew and Luke. Because not in Mark, because Mark, Jesus is a servant, and nobody cares where a servant came from or who his mom and dad are. And in John, there is no genealogy because he is being presented as God, and God does not have a genealogy. So that leaves Mark and Luke. So we're not starting with the genealogy of Christ, but Matthew did. In chapter 1 is his genealogy, or to alliterate with the following chapters, it is his ancestry. In chapter 2, he is being announced as king by the wise men, the magi from the east who come. And in chapter 3, 
is his baptism, or more literally in the case of Jesus, and particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, it is his anointing as king. Ancestry, announcement, anointing. In chapter 4, the temptation of Christ is actually where it's being established that he is without sin. And so his moral authority is being proven. It is on display. And because he has authority, moral authority, he has the authority to legislate, to tell us what to do. And that's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where I'm going to be for the next few weeks. So all of us want to know that someone is without sin, or at least has some measure of integrity before they presume to tell us what to do. And that's why the temptation account precedes this, because this is, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Christ legislating, Christ telling his people, this is what my kingdom looks like, this is how it will be ordered. His kingdom is totally different than the kingdom of this world. It is a radical difference. There is no way that you could come out of hearing this sermon on Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and believe that Jesus is simply trying to change or to improve upon something that's already happened. This is totally different. This is a clash of kingdoms, a clash of culture. Culture shock is a very real thing. And I think that as Jesus was giving this sermon, people would have been left with, really? This is what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom? Some have described these chapters as the constitution for his kingdom. And I believe that's probably accurate. I recall when I first went to Columbia Bible College in South Carolina back in the late 1970s, and I knew that there would be some culture um, change, difference in coming from Texas to South Carolina. At least I knew the accents would be different because I'd already called to the school to ask a question, and I thought I was talking to somebody from Gone with the Wind. I didn't know that accent really existed anywhere. And so I knew a little bit what to expect, but I didn't know anything. When I got there on campus and um, that night, I was late back to um, the school for reasons I won't go into totally, um, but I, was, I didn't even know there was a curfew and the school was locked up tight, not a light on on the campus, and I had to knock on somebody's window to get the, the door unlocked, and he stood there like he, I owed him an explanation, and I didn't even know who he was, so I didn't give him an explanation. And I went to my room, and I thought, well, I'm kind of wound up. I think I'll just, um, not ready to go to bed. I think I'll read the student manual, first night on campus. And so I'm reading this manual, and I'm going, you know, I believe purgatory actually exists. Um, <laughs> I've I discovered it. It is in Columbia, South Carolina. So many rules. Rules that I, I maybe were pertinent 100 years ago, but I certainly were not pertinent in my lifetime. Well, I, I'm one of the biggest ones, and I just got, I said, God, this is really, really going to be difficult. I could not wear blue jeans except on Saturday. And I'm thinking, why? They're just trying to make my life miserable. It was a culture shock. South Carolina had its own culture, and Columbia Bible College had another culture. I say that because the culture that Christ is introducing here Every, there are, every family has its own culture, every church, every institution. They all have a culture, and we have to learn those cultures. We have to learn to adapt. But this culture is radically different than anything the earth has ever seen. 
And so as Jesus begins his sermon and he has the crowd around him and he sits down, the multitude is there, he opens his mouth and he begins to speak. And he says the very first words here, which are mind-blowing. Blessed. That's not the mind-blowing part. And as soon as he starts these blessed, 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 immediately these Israelites would have been thinking of Deuteronomy 28 and what we call the Palestinian covenant. It starts in the same way. Blessed are my people. Blessed you are if you do these things. And it lists the blessings that will come upon Israel if they walk with God and serve God. So they would have immediately, when they hear these repeated blessings, thinking they would have thought Jesus is giving another covenant. He is giving another constitution. Just as Deuteronomy 28 serves as the constitution for for Israel, now he's giving the constitution for his kingdom. But these blessings are nothing like the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, blessed shall you be in your fields. Blessed shall you be in your homes. Your wives shall be blessed. Your your livestock will be blessed. Your fields will be blessed. Your businesses will be blessed. It's all very tangible, material blessings. And now Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? That's blessing? To be poor in spirit? Radical stuff. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I can tell you more easily what it does not mean than what it does mean. And it does not mean to hate yourself. It does not mean to have a bad self-image. It does not mean to loathe yourself. It doesn't mean to lack in confidence. It doesn't mean to be insecure. What it does mean is that you see in yourself that you do not have the ability to live this life. That is not, again, negativity. That is not um, being depressed. That is facing reality. It's understanding that I do not have the resources, the wherewithal, to live life as God has intended. This is the very beginning of blessing in the kingdom of God. You cannot advance in his kingdom. You cannot know the blessings of his kingdom until you first understand that you have nothing in and of yourself for living this life. It is the most fundamental aspect of his kingdom. It is humility. Not self-loathing, not self-contempt, just simple humility accepting about ourselves what God says is true about us. Both on the negative, you cannot, but also on the positive, God can. That's humility. Some people say, I don't know how you, can, how you can think it would ever be humble to say that I am sure that I am saved and I am sure that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And, that, and they said, that just sounds like arrogance. Well, it's not arrogance. Humility is accepting the truth of what God says not dickering with it, countering it, not arguing with it, not doubting it, just simply accepting it. And when God says in his word, we can do nothing apart from him, that ought to bring poverty of spirit. When God says in his word, I am able to do what you cannot, that too is humility when we accept it by faith. We need to understand with these beatitudes that each one is going to lead into another, They are like links on a chain. 
And each of them is not just characteristics of Christ's kingdom, but they have to be also characteristics of the king. The king cannot legislate contrary to his own character. These are revelations of himself. Jesus is poor in spirit. That helps me to understand what this is. Jesus says, the son can do nothing except what he sees the father doing. Jesus says, I never take my own initiative in anything. Those two statements are revelations of poverty of spirit. It is not living from self, not living for self, but it is living from God the Father, in dependence upon him. It is a blessed state to be. Jesus is the only one who can bring this about. I can humble myself, but I cannot make myself humble. I can do the right thing, but I cannot make myself righteous. And I can recognize that I have nothing in myself, but that in itself does not make me poor in spirit. It takes God to be humble. It takes God to be righteous. And ultimately, it takes God to make us poor in spirit. We don't come into this world poor in spirit. Remember? If you don't remember, look at your children. Look at your grandchildren. This is why children need to be disciplined. Because they are full of themselves. There is not poverty of spirit. There is a strong, I will, my will. You're not going to make them eat their peas. You're not going to make them sit down when you tell them to sit. There is a strong defiance in them. Some of them it's stronger than others, but all of them have it. We have a grandson not in the room today. I was with him a couple weeks ago, sweetest little boy, and he had done something, and I was kind of, you know, I was rejoicing with him, and I said, that's great, give me five, and I put my hand down, and he raised his hand to give me five, and then he just thought, no. (laughs) Why would he be defiant over that? No, he pulls his hand back. No, not going to do that. He is not poor in spirit. I'm praying it happens. But ultimately, no matter what his parents do, they can't make it happen. Doesn't mean they give up. Doesn't mean they stop trying. But only God. And so I'm with him, just me and him in the house, and he's taking half the day to unload the dishwasher. And when he finally gets it done, I'm saying, you need Jesus. And I had a little talk with him. It doesn't have to be this hard. It doesn't have to be this prolonged. You don't have to go through and bring all this difficulty upon yourself. Because see, when God's agenda is to establish his kingdom, his culture within our hearts, see, God's not going to let up. Parents let up. Parents give up. But God doesn't. And I can guarantee you, every day of your life, God is at work in each of us to bring about a poverty of spirit. Because you cannot advance until this has happened. There must be this in our lives. There's no, there's no second step until the first. You don't skip this first base. This is first base. And it has to be true in us. This is why we should not get in the way too much when we see what God is seeking to accomplish this, this in someone else's life. It can be very brutal. 
can be hard to watch as God does this. We should pray. We should give our comfort, but we should not interfere. And this takes truly the wisdom of God to know the difference, to be compassionate, empathetic, caring, but not interfering when God is working to bring a person to poverty of spirit. This is why mom and dads need to be on the same page when it comes to disciplining their children. And when dad, maybe not dad, maybe mom, but one of them, you know, dad says, no, you don't allow the kid to go to mom and cry and say, but, and she goes, well, we'll make an exception. No. He needs to learn to come under. He needs to learn that there is nothing in himself that is good and that he comes to God for God's work. We have to find the poor person needs to find that his fullness is only in Christ, that there's nothing that's going to remove the poverty. We will always be poor in spirit, but we will find our fullness in Christ and in Christ alone. And when a person is poor in spirit and they're finding their fullness in Jesus, this world can take nothing from them. I want you to think about that. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, good things, constitutional things that we're supposed to be have protected. But even if the world should take those things from us, if we are already poor in spirit and we are drawing our fullness from Christ himself, there is nothing this world can take from us. Because my wealth, my enrichment is not given to me by the world. I am poor before God, and my satisfaction, my enrichment, my fullness is in God alone. The degree of poorness, of poverty, is beggar poor, as one writer said. It's not just that we don't have all that we would like to have. We have nothing, nothing apart from him. It is beggar poor. We heard, have all, those of my generation at least, have heard the expression dirt poor. There's two ways that's taken to mean. One is that you may have land, but you don't have any cash. So a lot of farmers and ranchers will, will describe themselves as dirt poor. I don't know that that's really how the word was, was originated, the term dirt poor. More likely, the origination of that phrase is because people can be so poor, children so malnourished, that they will literally, while they're sitting in the dirt playing, pick up the dirt and put it in their mouth to eat it. Because they instinctively know there is iron in the dirt, and their body is craving iron, normally that you would get from eating meat. But they're so poor and so malnourished that they'll pick up the dirt and put it in their, in their mouth and, and let the iron um, assimilate into their bodies. That is dirt poor. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's the recognition of the fact that I do not have in myself what it takes to be the person I was created to be. It is deeper than recognizing I fail. It is realizing that I do not have the capacity within myself to do anything else. All the riches of heaven are available to the person who recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy. This was true of Peter. It's true of Moses. It's true of Paul. And as I've already said, it is how Jesus also lived as a man. Not depressed, not, not um, 
living in a, in a, in a you know, like he's, he just has to walk around with dust on his head, but living truly from the Father, where he said the Son can do nothing of himself, John 5, 19, and that he did nothing of his own initiative. There is nothing about poverty of spirit that says I will assert myself, that I will dominate, that it is, it is about a living, a totally responsive life to God. Can you be an aggressive, initiating type of person? In Christ, yes. And there will be circumstances where as you're living in poverty of spirit and you're drawing totally from Christ, that Christ will inspire you and move you with strength to step into a situation boldly where other people would cower. Only the man who has been truly made poor in spirit and finds his strength and his resources in Christ can be that kind of man. He will often be the strongest man because he is so empty of himself. Nothing you can do to him. You can't threaten him with taking his life because he recognizes he has no life apart from Christ, and Christ is his life. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche did not understand the true meaning of this, but he got the gist of it. He's a philosopher, and every time I say his name, the Germans all start laughing. I know. You're holding it back. I appreciate that. That's how I say it as a Texan, Nietzsche. But the German philosopher Nietzsche was most famous for saying, God is dead. But one of the other things he was famous for, for was saying that Christianity is mankind's greatest misfortune. He said that because of this verse and others like it. He understood there is nothing in Christianity that promotes self. Nothing in Christianity that would say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Christianity says we can do nothing apart from Christ. And that this life is not about advancing self. It is about dying to self. Nietzsche knew it. He saw it, and he hated it. So he wrote about Superman. This is where we get the Superman comic strips and all. Nietzsche was the guy who came up with that, Uberman, the Superman. And this is what Hitler picked up on, and his whole Nazi philosophy of Aryan supremacy was based off Nietzsche's writings a man who despised the idea of being poor in spirit. Are you seeing the counterculture that we have here? That Christ's kingdom is totally, radically different from the kingdom of this world. Nietzsche saw it. I think sometimes we don't. God did not come in flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, to change this culture. He will not change this culture. He will not change this world system. He came to change people, individuals, to save them. And the day will come when he will wipe out the kingdoms and the cultures of this day insofar as they are contrary to his. And he will establish his own kingdom. In the meantime, yes, lives are changed radically changed, transformed by the power of God's grace working in us. And through that, yes, cultures change. Praise God. 
But that was not his agenda for coming. Because God knows better than all that ultimately this world will always be absolutely antagonistic to his kingdom. It is a conflict of kingdoms that will never change until he destroys the kingdoms of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not will be, is. There's some sense in which we are current possessors of the kingdom of heaven if we are poor in spirit. The disciples came to Jesus one time. This is in Matthew 18. They said, who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus took the opportunity to call a child to himself. And the child came over, and I picture Jesus kneeling down and bringing the child in close. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like one of these little ones, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. So the very entrance into Christ's kingdom is to become like a child. And what are children? Well, they are self-willed. Not everything about a child is good. But Jesus is going to, in that passage, list three things about children that are good. We'll look at that another time, perhaps. But humility is what he is after. Humility. And unless you are converted and become as one of these, you shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven. But once we do, we humble ourselves and we say, Jesus, I need you. I've been made by you. I've been made for you. And I need you to live this life. See, that's being poor in spirit. No, no person full of himself will ever receive Christ as his Savior. It is only as we become poor in spirit that we'll even say, Jesus, save me. In that manner, we enter into his kingdom. We enter into his very life. And that is the same disposition by which we live throughout our lives. Dependence upon him, thankfulness to him, receiving as a free gift all that he has to offer us, and as I've already said, the one who is poor in spirit has the riches of heaven available to him. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. I won't spend as much time on the next Beatitudes, but I would again point out they are links in a chain. One leads to the other, and that they are all true of Jesus in one way or another. So verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. These are promises. They are certainties. Those who mourn over what? This is a response to poverty, of understanding of my condition and my inability to do anything. We can hide our poverty. We can pretend it isn't true, or we can mourn over it. Repentance is a change of mind regarding what I am. This is the sorrow of repentance, not the sorrow of bereavement. The Christian life isn't all laughter. This isn't only the sorrow for my sin and spiritual condition, but sorrow of that comes, that comes from saying no to self and yes to God. Jesus was a man of sorrows. Jesus was a man who knew grief, not just over the condition of the world, but the mourning even that comes from saying, yes, I have to say no to self. Even for Jesus, it was costly. But a poor person is a mourning person, a person whose their sorrows are in his heart, 
It's not just all laughter. But there is laughter, there is joy, there is blessing, but there's the blessing that comes from seeing life as it truly is. We will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. The promise of Scripture is that we are comforted by the Holy Spirit who is the comforter. He replaces all that I am with all that he is. There's no greater comfort than that. Replacing, not repairing. He didn't come to fix me. He came to replace sin with righteousness. He came to give me, in place of my fallen life, his righteous, holy life. He is replacing poverty with his riches, our sin with his righteousness, our weakness with his strength. And that is true comfort. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, how counterintuitive is that? The way to inherit is to dominate, to take. No way for somebody to give it to you. Rise up and take it. It's yours for the taking. You can be anything you want. Just go out and grab it. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, the meek, the ones who get beat up in the schoolyard. They're the ones who will inherit the earth. Really. It is nothing like what this world teaches us. It doesn't mean, again, that we have to be passive, that we have to be doormats, but there is a certain gentleness that comes into the heart of those who are poor and those who mourn. Find me a person who's mourning, and I tell you, in the midst of their grief, there is gentleness. They're not angry in their, in their grief. They're not lashing out at other people in their grief. There's gentleness. In the tears comes gentleness. In the mourning, in the grief, self-strength evaporates, and we can only be sustained and strengthened by him. Poverty and grief bring humility and submissiveness to the lordship of Christ. A true estimate of self brings humility and gentleness in our dealings with others. Not weak and spineless before men, but submissive and humble before God. The person who is submissive and humble and meek before God will be anything but spineless toward men. And again, he's not looking to find his strength and his affirmation from men, but he's finding that in God. And that meekness, which Jesus was the picture of. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn of me. Take my yoke and learn of you. Learn of me, for I am gentle. Same word here, and lowly of heart. It's been said that the meek man is free from three burdens in life, at least three. The burden of pride. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has decided long ago that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. The meek man has accepted God's estimate of his life. His motto is, in himself nothing, in God everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. That's a meek man. The burden of pride, gone. The burden of pretense, which is the common human desire to put the best foot forward and hide from the world his inward poverty. I remember my brother one time went out on a date in high school and had a 
new, bought a new shirt for the occasion and spent, came back that evening and was getting undressed and realized that he hadn't taken the cardboard collar out from inside his collar the whole day. And he just, and he just felt so foolish and humiliated and, and, um, because he thought he looked and, and, and acted so sharp and here he didn't, didn't, hadn't even taken the cardboard out of his shirt collar. We all have known that sense, that embarrassment. Oh, my. You know, people see us for what we really are. But when a, a meek person is no longer of a concern, the burden of pretense evaporates. The burden of artificiality, the fear that someone will see me as I really am, which is ignorant, incompetent, shallow, keeps me from relaxing. I try to appear when I am not. Artificiality is one curse that will drop away the moment we kneel at Jesus' feet and surrender to his meekness. Only an evil desire to shine makes us want to appear other than what we are. The rest that Jesus offers is the rest of meekness, the blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. These people, the meek, inherit the earth. The earth is no longer, the world is no longer their master. They're free from that. It just doesn't matter anymore. I remember Oswald Chambers saying that when a man is truly convicted of his sin, he doesn't care if anybody else knows about it. Because all that matters is God knows, and God has dealt with me. So he's free. Conviction brings freedom because God has dealt with him. And it no longer is the world and its opinion his master. He is no longer a slave to his sin because he's been convicted of his sin and he has come before God and God has set him free in every sense of the word. I hope you know I'm not very smart and I certainly can't come up with these great things that I'm telling you. Um, I don't even remember where I've gotten them. <laughs> I would give credit where credit is due, but I honestly don't even remember where, I, where I've stolen many of these things. I know in my heart, each of us do, as I read through these statements, how true they are. Simple, profound truth. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sorry, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A wholesome life has a healthy appetite. The first two weeks that I had COVID, I had no appetite. I felt fine. Hadn't lost my sense of taste or smell. Food still smelled good, tasted good. I just didn't want it. No appetite whatsoever for two weeks. That's not an indication of health. It's an indication of unhealth to have no appetite. You cannot will appetite into existence. So I was telling myself, I need to eat. I can will to eat, but I cannot will appetite, hunger. And when I began to get better, I knew I was getting better because now I'm eating everything in sight like I used to. It is a perpetual state, hunger, that is due to poverty of spirit. If we are perpetually poor in spirit, 
we will be per perpetually hungry because poor people are always hungry. They don't know what it's like to have a full stomach. Have you ever heard that? I have heard a, t the, a testimony of a poor person. I think it was a missionary or somebody talking about they were talking to some folks, and they have never had the sensation of fullness. Constantly hungry because they have been constantly poor. Poverty of spirit brings about a constant perpetual hunger. But this particular hunger is a hunger for righteousness. Well, I thought we are righteous in Christ. You pl we place our faith in him. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. I positionally have been made righteous. I have been imputed with the very righteousness of God himself. But I know I fall short still. And because I am in a relationship with the righteous one, I now want to please him. And unrighteousness grieves me. That is just an indication of belonging to him. People ask me, what is the evidence of being saved? Well, it's not necessarily good works. Because you cannot abide and there be no good works. No fruit if you're not abiding. Doesn't mean you're not saved. But even when you're not abiding, I think there'll be grief over sin. I think there'll be an awareness that we are, that we are quenching the Spirit of God. That there'll be an awareness that, that, that we're not right, we're not living as we know that we could. And, and there's this desire to please one that we know that we're not being pleasing to. It's an indication of belonging to him. He doesn't say, not blessed are the righteous. He does not say, blessed are the righteous. But he says, blessed are those who hunger for it. It is the hunger of righteousness that is the evidence of Christ in us. Hunger is a symptom, and facing up to it is the source for having it satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Merciful, the next verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they, again, Nietzsche would go, are you kidding me? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful get taken advantage of. Jesus is saying the mercy will merciful will receive mercy. This is compassion for people in need. It is the condition to receiving mercy. The condition to receiving mercy is giving mercy. Mercy isn't merited by being merciful, but mercy is evidence of a broken and repentant heart. And we can't receive mercy without repentance. The extent to which we know the enrichment of God in our lives is the extent that we allow ourselves to be an enrichment to others. Who is likely to be merciful? One who recognizes his own poverty in spirit. One who mourns. One who has become gentle. One who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. One of my brothers, he was ashamed of it now. At the time, it seemed funny. When we were in college together, there was a particular corner near the college where men would stand out on the corner most of the day, not working, just standing out on the corner. 
likely dealing in drugs and things. We never stopped and asked. But my brother would drive by and yell out the window as loud as he could, get a job! And we all thought it was funny. And then my brother says, and then I went a period of time needing a job. And it made him merciful with those who are needing work. Poor in spirit, mourning, gentle, hungering and thirsting, it all contributes to make us merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All these are just leading one into the other. The connection is there. Pure in heart, where the sin is not the dominant thing. The one thing is we know we have nothing in and of ourselves. All we want is to lay hold of Christ, as Paul said when he wrote to the Philippians, this is my master ambition to lay hold of him. What does a pure in heart person look like? He's not naive. He's not gullible. He's a person who sees clearly. But you know when you're around a person who is pure in heart, when everybody else is just saying the sky is falling and he goes, Jesus is coming down. See, he sees things differently. He sees what God is doing. And I love being around people like that because I can be the negative Nancy. You know, I can be the one running around the sky is falling. And I so appreciate being around those individuals who are truly pure in heart because they always see God. They see what God is doing. I remember talking to a mom who, whose one son was just out in the weeds, just, had, just nowhere close to where he should be. And, and I said, How, how's he doing? And she was just a mom in grief over the terrible decisions her son was making. But she is a pure-hearted woman. And in the midst of that and the grief that she was experiencing, she was mourning but she could still see what God was doing. And her words were, God's at work. God is at work. God is at work doing what? Making him miserable, making him poor in spirit. And she knew, see, this is the process. We just go, oh, my, things are never, they're never going to be right. And we fail to remember that it takes many times hard things before a person will say, God, save it takes sometimes years of realizing that my way doesn't work before a person will turn to God and say, God, I need you. And this dear mom, a mourning mother, was a mother who was pure in heart for she could see what God was doing. The pure in heart, they see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Wow. Be careful again here. A peacemaker is not simply a person who wants the conflict to stop. A peacemaker is a person who works to bring warring parties together in reconciliation. And the true peacemaker is the person who wants those who don't know Jesus to come into relationship with him, to be reconciled to God. And we all know, don't we, you can have nothing in your heart but goodwill and desiring for your coworker, your friend, your relative to know Jesus. 
that you can't even speak his name without being hated. Peacemakers will be persecuted. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, yes. But the next attitude is you're going to be persecuted. Even though your heart is pure, there is poverty of spirit. You want nothing but this person to walk with Jesus and to know Jesus. The kingdoms are in such utter conflict. For you to go to a person, you go, how could they possibly be any closer to realizing their need for Jesus? You go, this person, if ever they were ready and right, now's the time. And you just say, can I tell you about Jesus? No! God calls us sons of God. Don't think the world will. They shall be called sons of God. Not by the world. Not by the world. God says, this is how my son is, willing to give his life for his enemies, that they might be reconciled to God. But don't expect the world will ever call you something nice because you desire their salvation. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, as in the past tense, have been persecuted, for theirs is currently the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. The key there is falsely, that we don't deserve it, but you're blessed. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Totally different world system that Jesus is introducing here. Totally different culture, totally different kingdom than anything of this world. This is ours. Home is here. This is our culture. Right here. This is our kingdom. Right here. I think it'll help us greatly to be comforted and eased about what's going on in this world. Doesn't mean we stop caring about this world, that we stop praying for this world, that that we disengage from this world. But we need to understand there's a conflict in kingdoms. This is our world, and the world about us will never be like this. So we, God would have us to live in Christ and from Christ, allowing him to bring this to bear in us, and it will be more costly. I think as I read through this passage, I've often thought, what is wrong that we're not being persecuted? See, it's not what is wrong, we're being persecuted. What is wrong that we're not being persecuted? Because that is the expected outcome of a life that is consistent with the king and his kingdom. As someone wrote, no one's troubling you, you may not be a peacemaker. Not a peacemaker, so I'm taking these in reverse order, because you aren't pure in heart, single-minded. Not pure in heart because you aren't merciful. More concerned to receive than to give. Not merciful because you aren't hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Not hungry and thirsty because you aren't meek, humbly submitting to Christ. Not meek because you aren't mourning your own bankruptcy. And not mourning because you aren't poor. You're sufficient in yourself. 
and not poor means you aren't blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It begins with poverty of spirit. This is God's definition of a blessed life, totally contrary to this world. And it's good. Whose kingdom do we want? Kingdom of the world or kingdom of Christ? I'll close us in prayer. God, I do thank you so much that we have before us two kingdoms. And we see it like the person who does not know Christ will never understand. And I thank you, God, that we have made, been made participants in and inheritors of heaven itself that Christ himself, the King, has come to indwell all those who simply have placed their faith in Christ for salvation. We have him, the King, and his kingdom now in us. God, we long to see this world impacted, changed, improved, um, safer. All the good things, God, it is not wrong to pray that there would be peace in this world. But we know your ultimate end is for individuals to be made right with you. And I pray, God, that we would, from a pure heart, seek the salvation, the true peace of those who have not yet come to know Christ. And that when persecuted, God, for being peacemakers, that we will rejoice and be glad. We are not alone. This is not unique. It is to be expected because we are not of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom, and that citizenship is in heaven. And I thank you, God, that you are more than adequate as the one who has saved us to also keep us and to prosper us in this world. But we freely admit the greatest blessing that we have is yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.